That brings us to the second section, also the final section of 1 John. The second section is living as children of Yahweh. Living as children of Yahweh. This is 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 through chapter 5, verse 21. In this second division, John establishes that the believers are children of Yahweh by the fact that he died for them and adopted them. John develops the same four conditions as the previous division, but adds between the third and fourth conditions, another condition of the need for mutual love. So John is going to repeat the same four conditions, but he's going to unpack them now in the context of living as children. But he's going to add a fourth condition, or fifth condition, but he's not going to add it at the very end. He's going to add it between the last two. John unpacks the idea that meeting these five conditions can be accomplished only by being fathered by Yahweh and receiving the Spirit through our trust in Jesus Christ as the God-man. And when these conditions begin to grow in our lives, this is a testament to our knowing and residing in Yahweh because we have truly been fathered by him and have been born again. Where the first division was interested in and walking with God in the light. Fellowship. And these conditions have to be met to prove that you're in sync, in step with him. That you're living like him, talking like him, thinking like him. Or, and when you're not, you're repenting and coming back to him. Now John is interested in re- looking like a child of God. Not just walking and acting and stuff, but actually being a child of God. And what John's going to point to is that if you say that you, to, to use a, 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 an old example and a blatantly obvious one, if you say that you are a duck, then you better walk like a duck and quack like a duck and eat like a duck and, and be annoying like a duck. And if you say you're the child of a duck, then you should look like the father. And this is what John is going to go to. He just ended the last section that the true believer acknowledges that the Father and the Son are the same. And to deny one is to reject the other. And the same way that Jesus say, if you knew the Father, you would know me, because I look, act, and talk, and think like him. Therefore, if you say that you're of me, and you're my child, then you will look like me. You will act, talk, think, and look like me granted you're maybe a little child and you have a lot more maturing to do but we can at least see the resemblance and we know that right when, when kids start something they're like oh you look so much like your mom or you look so much like your dad but it's not until they get into their like 40s and 50s and 60s you're like oh my gosh you look exactly like them right john acknowledges that he's not saying that you will 100 percent look like him and act like him, and talk like him, and think like him. Because nobody can do that, right? That's why John says, thank God we have an advocate in Jesus Christ through confession of sins, the blood atones for us, right? Repentance. But he is saying, but I should see the genetic marker, so to speak. Even in your young infant, or child, or teenager, or young adult faith. I should see that. And in no, you will not completely 100% resemble him in this life. Sanctification over time should show me 
that you're looking more and more like him. And that's what this section is interested in. The first was interested in walking and being in the light and fellowship within God. And now John's going to argue, if you say you truly have fellowship with God, then you will look like his child. You will look like his son or daughter. And I should be able to look at you and see the resemblance. And that's what he's interested in this section. There are five conditions that will show that you're truly a child of God. So that brings us to the first section of this second division. And this is the first condition is the renounced sin, just like the previous division. This is John chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. In this section, John first establishes what it means to be a child of Yahweh. Then he develops the first condition. Those who are children of Yahweh renounce sin. The world accuses us of not acting like Christ, and in a way they are right. A true child of Yahweh will act like his father. And most of the religions of the world, there is no connection between moral ethics and religious commitment. It is because Christianity has done such a great job in making this connection that the secular world expects it from us. And most religions of the world, you don't have to act like you're God. Nobody expects that out of you. As long as you're devoted and your rituals, that's all that matters for you to say, I'm a Hindu. I'm a Muslim. Only Christianity expects the same moral righteous reflection of the Father that the Father has, or to become like that. And because Christianity has so shaped the American culture and so modeled that and taught that, that's why so many non-Christians expect that from us as well. Because we are the ones who taught and communicate that that's what it means to be a Christian. You can call other religions people hypocrites all you want, and they'll be like, okay. We don't even know who Allah is. Allah has never revealed himself or made himself known to us. I don't even know what it means to act and talk and act like Allah because no one knows Allah. The Hindu gods are all an illusion. Buddha, he's dead and gone. We have very few writings. To be not matching up with those doesn't matter as long as you're just devoted in your rituals and to your te- the teachings. Only Christianity says, look like your father. To be like Christ. What would Jesus do? And that's what John. And so every time where you call it a hypocrite, in some ways, now, granted, just because you mess up doesn't mean you're a hypocrite. A hypocrite says, I don't mess up, and then you do, and you don't own it. But when they say, why don't you look like that, that's no different than what John is saying. And you can either say, Oh, well, who, you don't know what you're talking about. You're not a Christian or whatever. I'm not actually making a mistake. Or we can say, you're right. And that's why I need Jesus. And that's why I'm doing everything I can in Bible studies and accountability groups and stuff to become more like that. And in the words of the author of Amazing Grace, I'm not what I ought to be, but I'm not what I used to be. That is a much better answer. What happens is this sonship father thing becomes a transition into this new section or new division of being children of God. But his looping back to the righteousness becomes the transition into going back to the first condition of renouncing sin. These two statements, father and son, lead us into the next division. 
and this statement of living righteously and practicing righteousness loops us back into the first condition again, renouncing sin. Chapter 3, verse 1. See what sort of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called God's children. And indeed we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Do you know the incredible gift and love that has been poured on you that a God of the divine universe calls you child? That you can call him Abba? Abba was the, 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 the Aramaic term for daddy, the, the affection intimate. And I already mentioned this, like there is no other religion that creates such a father-child, mother-daughter-like intimacy like Christianity. I already mentioned, Allah does not make himself known to anybody. And every Muslim, whether they're liberal, conservative, radical, jihadist, or peaceful, or American, first-come Muslim, multi-generational Muslim, every single one of them will tell you that the minute you say you know Allah, you're automatically sinning and you have no salvation. Let alone to say dad. And for him to say, child. The Hindus, the, the God force has no personality. Allah at least had a personality and a being. He just doesn't want to reveal it to you and doesn't want to know you and hang out with you. But the Hindu gods, they have no personality. That's a force, the God. And he's asleep and you're just a dream in his mind. He, I only say he because I grew up in Christianity. It, the force. And all those avatars are all an illusion. They don't know you. The pagan gods of the elements, the storm god, whatever really, in Africa and Rome and Greece and Babylon, whatever it is, all those elemental pagan nature gods, if you've ever read the mythologies, they don't care about you in any kind of way. And even the ones that Zeus fathered himself biologically, he barely pays attention to his children. There is no religion that says, come to me, my child. Oh, how I long to gather you together into my arms like a mother bird gathers her chicks to me, Jesus says. That you can call him Abba. That you're called a child of God. And that literally became a human and allowed the children to play around him. Even the Roman Empire, that was unheard of because Roman fathers, children, get them away. You only are relevant when you become 12 or 13 years old. No other religion has that. Do you know what incredible gift it is and what kind of love the Father has poured on you to call you children? The, the, the false teachers aren't doing that. Indeed we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. For this reason, the world does not, they, they, they can't comprehend that. They can't comprehend that. Roman fathers playing with their children? Unheard of. The pagan gods calling you a child? Unheard of. The only reason that the world around us can relate to that fatherly 
love for their child or that motherly love for their child is because they have been so shaped by Christianity for the last 2,000 years. And we talked about this, right? When Francis Schaeffer takes the difference between secondhand truth and firsthand truth. And, and the Christianity has become so impactful and culturally changing in the Western world that everybody has this Judeo-Christian understanding of righteousness and, and, and love and compassion because of how much Christianity changed the world. But we already talked about this. As Christianity dies in America, the world's walking away from that more and more. And we're seeing parents do things to their kids that you'd be like, whoa, that didn't happen when my grandparents were a kid. If it did, it was rare. People are doing things to the kids that you, what the heck? Yes, that happened back then, but it wasn't as common. And then now our movies are celebrating and promoting it. And the White House is promoting and celebrating the abuse of children in this way. Was there ever a day you could imagine that your president of the United States would celebrate children being sexually violated and paraded in front of the nation in a, a parade to celebrate a choice? As we walk away from Christianity, we're going to walk away from this idea and, it's and the world's going to become more and more confused by this father, son, mother, daughter, and then all the possible combinations kind of a love. They don't recognize that because they're not of the father. This is why we need to be light. And all the more why we need to not only embrace the truth so we're not misled and led away and that we can preach the truth to people, but we also need to embrace the fellowship of God so we can show them what real love looks like. Not a distorted political ideology, love, that love is love, but it actually hurts people and violates them. We need to show them what real love looks like. Verse 2, Dear friends, we are God's children now. And what we, have, we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that whenever it is revealed, we will be like him because we will still see him as he is. And everyone who has the hope focused on him purifies himself just as Jesus is pure. This is important too. Once again, wisdom literature. If you don't look like the Father, then you're not of the Father. But then the the Christ part comes in, the blood of Christ comes in and says, Oh, but dear friends, we are, we are God's children now, positionally, looking like him. But what we will become has not yet been revealed. I get that you're not all looking perfectly like your parents, your parent. But don't worry. Because if you're truly in him and you're truly as the child of God, then eventually you will grow up and mature and become just like him. John does not expect perfection. He does not expect you to immediately look like God the minute you're born, just like your little pudgy little baby didn't look immediately, completely like you when it was born. But he expects that you are a child, therefore you will grow and continue to grow, and you will look more and more like him as you grow. Verse 3, And everyone who has his hope focused on him purifies himself purifies himself. He's not saying that you are purifying yourself and making yourself holy and sanctified through your own works and efforts. He says, and everyone who has his hope on him 
purifies yourself. How do you become more pure? How do you become more sanctified? How do you become more like Christ? Not through your works and your own perfection and your own plastic surgery that you're doing yourself to make yourself more look like that, but because you have your hope focused on Him. Remember, you're Christ-centered and heaven-oriented. The fact that you're looking forward to the day that you will see your Father and you're doing everything you can to know Him now and be like Him so that when you see Him one day, you have such hope that one day He'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. Right? The faith of a child. When Christ is the faith of the child, He didn't mean, I want you to be immature and finite in your understanding of God like a little child is. Right? Because you're like, oh my gosh, no way. I want to be like that. He meant that child who has one desire and one desire only. And that's to please their parents. Right? As a little kid, they're like, look at the picture I painted. And you're like, yeah, that's great. We put it on the refrigerator? Yeah. On on a maturity level, that's not a great picture. But your, your child is like, do I approve? Do you approve? Are you pleased? I want nothing more than like you. And and I I had a therapist tell me one time, it's amazing how much tolerance and how much a child will make excuses for their parent because they so desperately want their parent to love them and accept them. That they're just so eager to please that you are the center of the world because you really are almost the only thing that they really know. And they want so desperately to please you. Now, eventually, they grow up and they realize that you are flawed and that you are limited and you have problems and you've got addictions and medications and, and, and coping mechanisms and flaws and all this kind of stuff. And, and so that disenchants them a little bit. And then you have conflict and all that kind of stuff. We get that. But the difference is we will never get to the point that we'll realize that about the Father. Because it doesn't, it's not true and it doesn't exist in Him. So therefore, we will never see it. We will never hopefully lose that childlike I have this hope of seeing you one day and showing you everything that I have become because I've done it for you. Now look at me and how amazing I am, but am I pleasing to you? Love me, love me. Say that you love me. And not in a dysfunctional arrested development sense, but in a I belong to you and you are my father and I want to be like you. That's what he's calling you to. That's the hope that purifies you. The author wants his reader to know that approval by the world is to be feared, not desired. To be hated by the world may be unpleasant, but ultimately it should reassure the members of the community of the faith that they are loved by God, which is far more important than the world's hatred. Yes, you so desperately want to be loved by the world, but God should be so much more amazing to you that you want to be loved by him more. Part of the, one of the ways that you overcome sin, one of the ways that you become more like Christ, one of the ways that the world's temptations and attractions begin to lose its luster and shininess is that the more you know God, the more amazing he becomes to you and the more shiny and attractive, for lack of better phrases, that he becomes. And then all the things of the world pale in comparison. They begin to lose their luster. You might think baloney is the greatest thing ever in the entire world. 
And then one day you grow up and you have the palate to appreciate a filet mignon, mignon and, and steak and, 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 and salmon that's been marinated and all kinds of stuff. You're like, bologna? How did I ever like bologna, right? I still like a really good hot dog at Costco, though. They make really good hot dogs. But you, you move on, right? You appreciate that. And so all those other things is kind of like, like my kids right, right now, they get so excited by that, that really cheap, crappy pink bubble gum and you're just like you're like that's so gross and they're like no it's not i'm like trust me you will come to a point in your life one day when you'll realize that's just not that good anymore there are much better things to sink your teeth into and it will come it will come i know there's some exceptions out there and if i've offended i apologize but largely speaking you move on and that's the idea that John is saying, that you, that's the hope. That's what attracts you. That's what you persevere. This is what purifies you. This is what, then when the world hates you, or then when you don't fit in, it doesn't bother you as much. Because you don't need the world to love and accept you to feel good. You already are so filled up in the Father. And then it becomes an assurance that you are actually are connected to the Father because they're, they don't like you, because you're not like them. Now, that won't be as true in every single state with us because, like I said, we're still living in this post-Judeo-Christian aura of America. And there will always be people who admire you, even in the depths of the depravity of the Canaanite culture, there were still Canaanites like Ruth or um, Rahab who saw and were attracted. So he's not talking about the exceptions. He's talking about the culture as a whole. And we know the culture as a whole, whole hates us. They hate our righteousness. They hate the morality that we remind them of. And even if you're not even judgmental, they just hate that. They hate the love that we preach. They hate the we're not okay with you just doing whatever you want. Verse 4. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. Indeed, sin is lawlessness. And you know that Jesus has revealed, um, Jesus was revealed to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Everyone who practices sin, who every, anyone who's in sin, anyone who's residing in sin, anyone who is continual in sin, that's the idea, practices lawlessness. This word lawlessness carries the connotation of wickedness, of truly going autonomy. I'm going to write my own law and do what I want. Therefore, I'm completely outside the law of God. And the Bible calls that wickedness. I mean, right? The, the, the world has a hard time understanding this. Like, well, you're a wicked person. Like, wow, well, that's your definition. You narrow-minded, bigoted Christian, right? What is wickedness? Wickedness is when you say, I don't care about your law, God. I'm going to live by my own law or somebody else's law, their ideology, their philosophy, and, I don't, and I'm going to do that. And that's what wickedness is. That's what wickedness is. So anyone who keeps practicing sin says, I don't care that you're not okay with that father. I don't care that this is ruining my relationship with you and other people. That is lawlessness. The law is love. 
And you following your heart is never loving to other people. It is, and he's not talking about a specific violation of the specific law and its commandments. He's talking about the law of love. Yes, the Mosaic Covenant is talking, is about love, God, and love others. But he's not specifically thinking, like when Paul quotes this off, he says, do not covet and do not like this. And when I came across these laws, sin came all the more, and, right? And I, I want to do those things, but I can't. And I, he's talking about very specific commandments. But John is just talking about, in general, that I want to do what I want to do, regardless of how it affects God and affects other people. And that's why I'm going to keep doing my thing. And that's lawlessness. And yes, that will automatically be violating specific commandments, but that's not what he's talking about. Verse 5. And you know that Jesus was revealed to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. In remaining verses, John makes two points about what a life of obedience in Jesus means. What does it mean to renounce sin and be obedient? First, the purpose of Christ's coming was to oppose sin in every way. You demonstrate who you are, who your Father is by the way that you live. Jesus came to renounce and do away with sin. He did it away with the penalty and the control of sin over your lives, the cross. And he did away with sin in your life through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And for you to go back to that shows that you have a different father. Verse 6. Everyone who resides in him does not sin, and everyone who sins has neither seen him nor known him. So the second point that he's making about what life and obedience to Jesus Christ means is that the children of Yahweh do not sin. At this point, once again, you're like, okay, that contradicts everything in the Bible. And that even contradicts what John said in chapter 1, right? When he said, yeah, you, you, those who say they don't have guilt, or those who say they don't sin, okay, but we have Christ, right? And so in that context, you say, okay, he doesn't really mean that you don't sin ever, right? Because thank God we're in Christ. But that's even further than what he said before. Before he says the one who says they have no guilt is sin, or that sin doesn't affect them. Or that they don't sin. And John says they're a liar. So John literally told you that if you say that you have no guilt of sin or that you don't sin, you are a liar. And now John's saying, we all know that real Christians don't sin. And you're like, John, you're a liar. They're like, oh, is this a test, John? Like, are you testing us? I'm going false teacher on you. Are you going to pick it up? Now, I do that sometimes when I read. I'll just make things up as I'm reading just to see. And some kids are like, oh, no, 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 no. And other kids are like, what? That's not in my Bible. And then, of course, within two seconds, I correct that. But that's a little different. But I feel like John's doing that, right? You feel like, wait a minute, he just said you don't sin. And we're like, oh, John, okay, I get it. I passed the test. Right? But that's, he's not doing that. So what does he mean by you don't sin? This has led people to three different views of what he means here. Because this is, this is difficult. And, and I know what view I take, but at the same time, this is a difficult thing. I mean, he says, they do not sin. Now, we know he does not mean that literally on face value because it contradicts what he's already said, and it contradicts the Bible, and it contradicts Christ, and it contradicts the Father. So we know he can't mean that. So the first view is a superior believer view. This is the view that literally says that's what he means. He said, you don't sin, therefore you don't sin. 
that distinguishes between the ordinary believer, the ones who are in the Father and they still need to confess their sins and they still need the advocate and they still need to go to God and that kind of stuff. But, but John is saying, but right now, that was chapter 1, the ordinary believer. But now that we're here in chapter 3, John is saying, oh, but you can get to the point that you look so much like the Father that you literally do not sin like the Father. And that it is possible to get in that lifetime. And that's the guy who came up and spoke at that university. They mentioned the illustration of virgin. They believe this. This is based on the assumption that 1 John 3, 6 and 3, 9 do not really describe the average believer, rather the one who truly walks close fellowship. That they have just been so aligned for so long that eventually all sin has left them. It's not saying that they saved themselves or that they got rid of their sin. This, this view would say they still needed Jesus Christ. But just like you and I would say eventually in the second coming of Jesus Christ and our resurrection, we will no longer have sin. And they would say, and you don't say that that's heretical. They would just say it's possible to get to that point through the blood of Christ and the atonement and salvation and walking with God and the Holy Spirit to get to that point before your death and before the resurrection. And so they wouldn't see this as heretical. It, it, well, it's not denying the necessity and the efficiency of Christ, in their opinion. The problem is this contradicts John's earliest statement in John, 1 John chapter 1, 10 through 2. And likewise, the author uses the word everyone. He doesn't make a distinguish between these and those. He says everyone. And it completely contradicts so many other passages in the entire Bible. Not one place does the Bible even say that this is possible or even hint at it. This is the only place that you get this difficult statement. So th th this is not possible. The second view is the habitual sin. This is the one that the person who is in a habitual sin. An unconfessed, unrepentant addiction or sin that continually happens. And, and, and maybe they confess or repent every once in a while, but it doesn't really hold, and they just keep going back to it, and they're trapped in it. And, and so what John is saying is that you don't do that kind of a sin. The real Christian, yeah, you sin and make that kind of, but you're, you're not intentionally pursuing a habitual sin. You're not intentionally pursuing an addiction. And, and, and the, the real Christian is the one that, and if you're pursuing an addiction or habitual sin, you're not saved. You're not really a child of God. That's what they would argue. This is all wrapped up in what's called the past tense of 1 John chapter 2, referring to the individual acts of sin. So when you go back to chapter 2, verse 1, they believe that John is talking about these past acts of sin and that you used to do those kinds of sins. But now that you're in Christ, you don't. So if you keep doing those kinds of sins, you're not really in Christ. And, and they wrap it all up in this past tense of the verb. The problem is that for John to make such a distinction about sin on a past and present for, for, from a verb is like, that's, that's not cool. That's a little unfair. That you would have to read that deeply. I mean, how many times are you really paying attention to all the past tense verbs and, and really analyzing them? And, I, and that, you're, that your understanding of this incredibly salvific point is dependent upon you noticing that past tense? 
And, and nowhere else does John ever wrap up deep theological truths and just the, the verb tense of something. Now, are verb tenses absolutely essential and important and change meaning of things? Yes. But do you wrap an entire theology up in the tense of one verb? No. That's not good communication. That's not good writing. And plus, John loves switching tenses all the time in a way that a lot of authors don't even know why he's switching tenses. Remember, we talked about that one of the things that makes John structuring and outlining his book is that he sees the wander all over the place and go like ADHS on everybody, attention deficit, hey, shiny. And, and he just seems to just have these switches and styles and stuff. And it's like, and if that's really confusing to even the most intellectual Hebrew and Greek scholars that are out there, and then he just switches around tenses all the time, then that's, that's you're, you're putting way too much into it. This leads us to the third view, that the fully transformed child of God will not sin. That he is talking about your final destination, transformation, salvation. Now we use the illustration like, there is no chewing gum in this classroom, and the kid's clearly chewing gum. Or when you watch The League of Their Own and Tom Hanks goes up to the girl crying, he's like, there's no crying in baseball. And you're like, well, obviously there are, is because she's crying right now. But what he means is a true, a true, final, complete, fully arrived baseball player will never cry. And you're not that yet. And so I got to still kick you into shape, so to speak. And that's why I'm yelling at you right now so that you'll be kicked into shape. That's the idea. What John is talking about is that that's the final destination. That ultimately in the end, the true full-blown child of God, fully developed, fully mature, will not sin. Any justification of your sin is not achieving that path. Any willingness to keep pursuing it, any hesitation and repentance is not accomplishing that. And that fits the wisdom literature of John. That fits the wisdom literature. We've already seen John say, you're in the light or you're not, period. There is no in-between. And the only way that he covers that in-between is, thank God we have an atonement in Jesus Christ. This fits the wisdom literature that real, true, 100% biological children do not sin. And that's what you need to be aimed for. But, but remember, you're not there yet. Because you've been adopted, and you've been grafted, and you're not fully mature. But, but, if you truly are adopted in Christ, and you truly are grafted in, and you truly are walking with Him, then eventually the graft will completely transform you. Eventually you will completely full, fully develop into the DNA of your Father. And that's your goal. And so like wisdom literature, wisdom literature is reminding you, yes, the narrative is reminding you, assure your salvation. Don't beat yourself up just because you've sinned and made mistakes. Yes, you have not completely looked like the Father yet and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, do not become lax. Do not use that as a justification because that is the ultimate goal. That is the bar that you're striving for. And John is always keeping you from either extreme. To think like, oh my gosh, woe is me. Beat myself with a whip and cut my body open with glass and repent. I'm a horrible sinner. I'm not really saved. And I don't mock that. I've been there. I've done that. 
He doesn't want you to become so defeated that you become so depressed and hopeless and then eventually you have no hope. And without hope, there is no purification. There is no continuing the race. But he also doesn't want you to become so, but we're saved in Jesus. And I'm okay. And there's no need for sanctification or sanctification can kind of happen when it, when it happens because I am in Christ and I am saved and I'm insured. And John says, no, 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 no. True children of God look like the Father. And true children of God want to grow up and be like Him. And true children of God are growing and maturing. And when your children stop growing, you get concerned. Physically, emotionally, mentally. And there are times where it's like, oh my gosh, they're not like, this isn't changing. Like, is there something wrong? And I start becoming concerned. And John is reminding you, wisdom literature is reminding you that if you're not growing, you should be concerned. And you should go to the pediatrician who is your father in heaven, the great physician. And so this is what John is saying. This is the view argues that the true believer will keep desiring that and saying, yes, thank God that I'm in Christ. Thank God that I'm assured. Thank God I don't have to do anything to be saved. I don't have to do anything to, to, to earn my salvation. Or I don't have to do anything to keep him liking me. And thank God I, I have atonement of sins and all that kind of stuff. But I'm not content to stay there. And I'm not going to use it as a justification. And depending on your personality, you tend to go to... We've all done both extremes. But certain personalities tend to lean towards one more than the other. And this is what John is arguing here. And this is what he means by the true Christian does not sin. Therefore, if there's sin in your life, you need to keep persevering and the hope that purifies you so that one day you will not be ashamed when he comes back and reveals himself to you. And you can say, no, I have not become perfect in this lifetime because that's not possible. But I have always been growing. I've always been growing. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as Jesus is righteous. And the one who practices sin is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was revealed to destroy the works of the devil. Everyone who has been fathered by God does not practice sin because God's seed resides in him and thus he is not able to sin because he has been fathered by God. The one who truly belongs to the Father practices righteousness like him. doesn't say that it's perfect like him. Practices righteousness. And the one who practices sin. And practice sin for him is that I don't care. I have no desire to grow. I have no desire to pursue him. Christianity was a get out of hell. And for all of us, that was our starting point, right? I don't want to suffer. I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to have this crappy life anymore. But because the seed of God resided in us, it began to transform that desire into a more altruistic a more I want to know God, not just escape something. But the person who's still there after X amount of years, I just don't want to go to hell. They have no desire to know the Father deeper. They have no desire to look more like Him. They have no desire to cease from um, what He wants them to not. Or it's not that important. And it's there a little bit, but not important. 
Even the non-believer has that desire to a certain extent, but they're not doing it because they want to know the Father or be in the Father. He's saying, your Father is the devil. Because only the completely unregenerate person doesn't actually care about pleasing the Father. Doesn't care about becoming more godly. Your assurance is that that desire is still there. And that you're pursuing time and intentionality. Right? Your assurance of salvation is that you are being intentional and you're putting the time in. And the fact that you're here is you're very intentional because this is a huge sacrifice and this is a lot of time. And then when you go home and you meditate on this and you allow it to transform you, then you're practicing righteousness. The Bible never ever says you have to overcome this in one year. You have to get it right in five months. It just says the one who pursues, the one who walks with, the one who pursues and seeks. That's the goal. For this purpose, the Son of God was revealed to destroy the works of the devil. If you're truly in Christ, he's destroying that thinking. Yeah, you might still have that thinking, right? There are times you're like, I just don't care anymore. This is too hard. Or, wow, this is really fun and it feels really good. Or, oh my gosh, I just like, I don't feel like I'm getting anything out of my Bible study or prayer right now. I don't want to do it, right? But the Holy Spirit is in there saying, no, no, no. And I'm going to destroy that. I'm going to pick away at it. I'm going to burn it. And that's what Christ came to do. And that's what God is doing in you. And if he's doing that, then everyone who has been fathered by God does not practice sin. You won't keep going back to that. You'll get better. He resides in them, thus he is not able to sin because he's been fathered by God. When you are truly in the Father and walking in sync with him, you will not sin. Therefore, when you sin, you need to get back in sync with the Father. By this, the children of God, or the Father. Does this make sense? And I know John is kind of repetitive. We're like, okay, we're going through these claims again, these conditions again. But because we need to hear it, and we need to understand it, and we need it to be beaten into our head, so that we will not beat ourselves up and say, woe is me, I'm not really saved. And John says, no, you are. Look, you're meeting these conditions. That's your assurance. But at the same time, we won't be like, oh, okay, well, then I'm okay, and I don't have to pursue this anymore. And John says, no, 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 because remember, the real son does not sin. The real daughter does not sin. That's what you need to strive for. And when you maintain that tension, that's... It's like taking both sides of the electricity in your circuit board and trying to hold them together. Maintaining that tension. There's always a part of you who wants to go one way or the other or to reject one or the other. But when only when you hold them together in Christ that you truly are saying, okay, I am in Christ in this moment. 